I tried to convince my wife to like, hey, we should buy like a lot of these cabins in West Virginia because we're just printing money on the first one. She's an attorney. She's very conservative by nature. Uh, and she was just, yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to zone in like, you know, five, 10 cabins in the woods. Uh, and so I, I, again, asked what I said, you know, 15 minutes ago, or asked this, asked the question of, you know, what would it take to form some sort of entity or fund such that we could, you know, buy these properties and diversify the risk across, you know, multiple owners, multiple of my friends who maybe would want to do the same thing. And that what I'm describing is basically a real estate private equity fund, right? Like put all the assets in one fund. You're listening to Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast, a podcast for those who are in and around the hospitality industry who love, live, and breathe what they do. You can join us for candid and unscripted conversations with hospitality experts and founders as we go deeper into their personal stories while they're sharing their triumphs and trials that got them to where they are today. I'm your host, Will Slickers, and you're listening to an episode of Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast. Now, let's begin. Welcome back to the podcast, and this episode is brought to you by our friends at Minute and Hostfully. If you haven't heard of Minute, Minute is the number one noise and occupancy detection device for short-term rental operators just like you. From their outdoor and indoor sensors, you can ensure that with their audio ID technology that you are not getting any false positives for things like wind blowing, plates breaking, dogs barking, doorbells ringing, you name it. You will only get notified when there's an actual potential party happening on site, and that could both be indoor and outdoors, especially as we come up to spring and summer seasons. Not only that, but they have amazing integrations from smart locks and other software partners, of course, like Hostfully. Now, if you don't know about Hostfully, then Hostfully is a property management platform built for short-term rental operators to ensure that they have the best connectivity with channels like Airbnb, Verbo, and Booking.com. Not only that, but they have the best integration marketplace I've ever seen, so that way, Operators like you can choose and pick their tech stack without having to force and comply to different operations that just don't make sense for you. Plus, their digital guidebooks are the best in class and your guests will love them because all the information they need to know about check-in all the way to check-out and the destination are right there at the touch of their fingertips. Check out these special offers from our partners, both Minute and Hostfully, in order to ensure that you are getting the best value with your technology as you continue to operate your business. Back to the episode and thank you so much for tuning in to Slick Talk. All right, Slick Talkers, welcome back. Today is a special episode. I get to interview and sit down and discuss a wide range of things with Tony Capert today, who is the founder of Blue Maple. And we're going to jump into his story, his background into getting into short-term rental ownership and investing. So Tony, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Will. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. And I want to give a quick shout out to our friend justin ford who was the kind of the puppet behind or the puppet master you could say the puppet master behind, exactly uh, yeah. yeah yeah behind the introduction to this episode because he was like talking he was talking to me uh one day as we were doing this micro series on our on our network and he was like you know who you need to interview outside of me and i was like who justin tell me who and he's like you got to meet tony he's the smartest guy i've met they own all these properties and they're just killing it. And the way that you've approached vacation rental operations and ownership and management has just been super refreshing compared to the traditional model that we've seen. So before we jump into all that, I want to hear a little bit about your background, your story, 
how did you get into entrepreneurship in general leading into where you are today with Blue Maple? Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. Excited to to chat and dig in and see where the conversation goes. I mean, just a bit about me. My background's largely been in in software and in venture back software. So prior to Blue Maple, spent 10 years building a software business called Contactually. Uh, we were a real estate CRM for agents as well as for brokerages. Grew that over, like I said, about a decade and sold it to Compass in 2019, big real estate brokerage. And, and just a bit of background, like we didn't go about initially trying to build real estate software. We kind of stumbled into that. We can, we can dig into that backstory. Uh, but as a result of building real estate software, you get really, really comfortable with real estate. And so when we sold the business to Compass, I was with with the company uh, for a couple of years, resting and, and uh, growing a lot of our lead gen business there. But I, my wife and I bought a little place in West Virginia and we started renting it on the side because we weren't there all the time and it was doing really well. So I said, why don't we try to buy a bunch of these? Uh, and that was the impetus behind uh, Blue Maple, which essentially is, it's an investment firm where we buy drive to cabins and cottages outside of DC where I live and we turn them into really high yielding vacation rentals. So anyway, we can dig into any of that, but that's my you know, quick background I'm a software guy who became sort of real estate STR guy. I, I want to jump into the STR, well, at least the, the real estate software guy piece first. Sure. Sounds like you've stumbled into entrepreneurship in multiple forms. So what was the initial stumble into real estate software and getting into venture back software in general and just kind of working in that industry? Did you have any previous background as a real estate agent or what was yeah, the, yeah. the initial? Yeah. I mean, look, I probably like you, I would guess, and probably like, like, a, like a lot of listeners, I've like always been a startup junkie and a guy who just likes to hustle and sell things. I mean, even back in high school, I was the guy on eBay who, you know, was selling ringtones and, you know, <laughs> bought random DVDs and was reselling them. I'm like, I've always been doing stuff like that from a very early age. Mm -hmm. And so well, before, idea before like you move on, I'm, I'm yeah. curious, like, why, why do you think that is? Like, was there something about how you grew up with your family or I don't know, does, was there someone who inspired you to do that? Or do you just feel like you were wired from day one? You're like, all right, this yeah. is fun. I think I'm just wired that way. I, I love the, the hunt of like, well, I don't know. There's, there's a couple of elements I love about it. The one is I'm just curious, right? So when I sort of stumble into something, I kind of always ask the next question. Well, why is it like that? Or what would it take to do something like that? I mean, take on, take, take uh, ringtones. And when I sold those on eBay, <laughs> these were literally sending like CDs and stuff in the mail. So this was ringtones and like eBooks and that type of stuff. I think I, I bought probably some ringtones or bought um, some eBooks on eBay. And I asked myself like, well, I wonder where they got those, or I wonder what it would take to actually sell these. So to, to make a long story short, I think I'm just wired that way. I asked kind of the what if, or how do they do that question about everything or why is it done that way? And I, you know, I grew up in a blue collar family. My mom was a hairdresser. My dad was a truck driver. It, there wasn't a lot of money at home to begin with. So mm -hmm. I wanted something or I wanted this, you know, I had to save money. Uh, I was working at a grocery store when I was 15. So I think it's just a lot of that, like, you know, having that natural hustle or, or proclivity to be really curious and then just channeling that in various little online things early on. And frankly, and we can revisit this maybe in a down, down the conversation, but I think about that a lot with my kids now. Like, how do I engender that with them or at least attempt to when they have like very different circumstances in their lives today? But that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, no, for sure. Sorry to interrupt on, on the trail you were on. I just love to, when I hear that, we've had a lot of guests in the past who 
kind of you know, share a little bit of like I sold candy bars in high like I did that in high yeah, school. Yeah. I was a band manager. Like I always try to figure out like little things to do, but never understood really like the why behind it until like way later down the road. So I'm always curious to hear, you know, if people felt like they were wired that way, or maybe someone introduced you to this type of hustle and experience, or I don't know. It's always just interesting to find out. But I'll let you continue on as uh, as you were. Well, yeah, well, maybe just a one more, more thought on that point, and then I'll hop yeah. into the contextually world, software world. You know, I think a lot of people, the people that I really respect professionally are the people that don't just, you know, have a lot of great ideas and talk about those ideas. I mean, that's always fun to do over drinks or whatever. Mm -hmm. You just kind of like come up with cool ideas, but it's the people yeah. who, you know, they have that idea. And then like a week later, they've like built some little MVP. Mm -hmm. And I think when you build like to the, the actual doers, whatever that doing might be, right? It doesn't need to be software, it could be whatever. The people who are willing to just like, you know, put a little bit of energy into doing that, that first version of the project, like that's, that's where a lot of this stuff comes from, right? It was the same with, with, uh, you know, we had the cabin in West Virginia. We weren't using it all the time. It was like, well, it can't be that hard to put it on Airbnb. And then when we had, when it was doing well, it was like, well, it can't be that hard to just buy a bunch more. And then my wife was said, well, I don't want to own, you know, a dozen cabins in West Virginia. So then I said, well, is it really that hard to form a fund? Right. So it was like, it was all those like little yeah. questions that just like kept going step by step. But, but anyway, but going back to the software world. Um, so that was my, I give you that background to say my, my lens or my worldview was already attuned to, I would love to start something if I found the right combination of people I'd want to start it with and like a cool idea I was excited about. Um, I was at Microsoft as a product manager in Seattle for a couple of years. My wife or my girlfriend at the time, now wife, was starting uh, law school in D.C. So we moved here where we're still living. And, um, you know, D.C. is not a big startup city. But I was reaching out to folks randomly that were involved with the small startup, startup ecosystem here. Um, one of those guys' name was Zvi. And Zvi had this little nugget of an idea for, for an, uh, an app that would bring in all your contacts from your phone, from email, from whatever, automatically build out your, your address book. And then his, his sort of unique insight was, wouldn't it be great if it monitored the last time you spoke to any of those people? And if it had been too long, it would say, Hey, Will, it's been, you know, three months at Stuck Stony. Why don't, why don't you follow up? So, so that was the, that was the initial like nugget of an idea of, could we build this, this like automatic follow-up app or automatic reminder app that would tell you who to talk to and when. And, you know, a lot of people, for what it's worth, a lot of people have tried to build that type of product for years and years. And most, there's a, there's a large graveyard of failed startups. And I think the biggest reason is, you know, that's like a, that's a nice to have problem. Like everybody knows they need to stay in touch with their network, but it's not like a real key pain point where people are willing to pay for that type of product. However, mm -hmm. if you're in a service business, like you're an accountant or a lawyer or a realtor, where you get the bulk of your business is from your personal network, from referrals. And so what we found is we were building this app without like a very clear customer in mind, but realtors started coming to us saying, Hey, I'm using your product and I'm getting more referral business. I'm getting more repeat business. And so and it took us a couple of years to, to really double down and focus on it. But we eventually said, well, why don't we just focus on this big vertical that's coming to us, all these customers, instead of building this like follow-up app, we're building a real estate uh, system eventually called ourselves a real estate CRM that helps agents follow up and get more repeat and referral business. And that that's how we moved into that world. And, you know, the rest is history. I mean, once, once we did that agents, when they came to our site or brokers, when they came to us, it wasn't like, you know, what does this thing do? What is it again? Most agents knew they needed a CRM and we were a real estate CRM 
that um, they could quickly get a lot of value from. And so it, we just, it just sort of went from there. So we eventually were the de facto and I think leading CRM in the industry. And we eventually sold to the biggest brokerage. But it's kind of funny how life works like that. It wasn't really planned. It just sort of happened. Well, it's funny how your, your users or customers start telling you who they were and why they wanted you. And rather than you guys being like, well, let's get everybody to use it, you know, friends and family and, you know, yeah, people yeah. that don't have a professional career in the sense of that or whatever it might be. And then all of a sudden, like one or two are like, hey, you should build this and keep going. Like, I'm a real estate agent, blah, blah, blah. And they told you who they were to then make that, I guess, ro product roadmap for you guys to be a lot easier to see a maybe a greener side or, or a, an end in, end in sight. So it's just funny how you built something unintentionally. Yeah, I, I've, I, I feel, um, I mean, two follow-up points on that I feel particularly strongly about. But one is, it is, it is really, I think, hard as a, as a founder uh, or someone starting a, a small software business to essentially say, you know, there's a lot of different types of customers that are paying customers today and they are people that we want to use service, the majority of whom were not realtors, right? Realtors mm -hmm. were, the, were the plurality, right? They were the biggest group, but it was maybe 30%, right? It wasn't, it, it wasn't an obvious like, oh yeah, this is 70%. And so it, it took us like a long time to say like, you know, are we, do we really want to like burn the boats and say we're going all in our real estate? I think a lot of people to their ultimate detriment, they, they don't make that choice and so they end up in this, like, always the bridesmaid, never the bride situation where, mm. you know, that target customer never really sees themselves in the product. And frankly, the company never orients itself to build the features and to market those features in a way that it just really resonates with, with the one clear target customer. So, yeah, I'd be lying if I said we did that from day one or that we had, it was very intentional and clear. It took us like two or three years to eventually say, oh, yeah, we're building for realtors. But once we did, it was just a total unlock, right? We, we just, the growth picked up dramatically. It was, it was, I'm so happy we did, but I just think it, it's somewhat counterintuitive. Like by focusing yeah. smaller, you can be a lot bigger. Yeah. Well, and not to mention one of our good friends of the show and, and sponsors, but Brooke Fotz, who's the founder of Inventory, uh, he tells me every time we're on the phone together, he's like, Will, there's riches and niches. Don't go too broad. Totally, just focus totally. on, yeah. just go on. Like as, as cheesy as that saying can be, he says all the time, he's like, you know, if we focused on owner acquisition of this and, and that and blah, 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 and becoming this and becoming that, we wouldn't have a sole purpose as a, a company to mm. go deeper rather than wider, right? Like you can always go wider, but it's kind of like a, do I go a mile deep or a mile wide? And, you know, sometimes it's good to do both. Sometimes it's good to go a mile wide. Sometimes it's good to just go a mile deep. And, and when you get narrowed down in that route of we're building this for realtors or we're doing a podcast network for hospitality or whatever this like mm -hmm. thing is, right? Like that kind of really does, like you said, the unlock moment happens. And that's kind of like where you can find like that special, special formula. It makes things way more exciting. Um, I think it gives like a lot of synergy and energy to you and the team. So, uh, can you, totally. can you maybe walk through, I would love to hear your thoughts on just when that unlock happened for you guys. I'm, I'm sure, like you said, the growth was exponential, but what part was the most thrilling and the good, like not a thrill of like the adrenaline thrill that everyone thinks of, but the most exciting piece when it came to, I guess, really going into that niche category. Yeah. Um, I mean, two things come to mind immediately. The one is maybe a little more obvious and the one is very operational. The one that's more obvious is when we doubled down in real estate and said, that's our target market, this is who we're going to sell to. Then 
it was, it was an obvious decision that we were going to, you know, go to the real estate conferences and we were going to build relationships with the biggest realtors and the biggest, you know, coaches and, and, uh, like influencers in the space, things that maybe you would question if it was like one of your customer types and you had five others to service, well, that's the only one. Of course, you're going to invest the time and money and energy in doing that. And in doing so, we quickly became, you know, thought leaders ourselves in the space. And we had a seat at the table, right? Like we were considered part of a co-cohort of companies and thought leaders and influencers that were sort of best to breed in the industry. So I think that was a huge unlock and advantage. And you know, I reflect on like our first couple of conference visits when you, you know, you've got the little booth or a little stand and everyone's just like, who the hell are these guys? And by the end, yeah. it was like, you know, we, we were a, a known entity, like we were well-respected and well-known in the industry. So that's, that's one thought. It's just sort of a more of a marketing feel. The other, I mean, I, uh, I'm like an operator to the core. Like I, I love building process. I like love being in Excel. That's just, that's just who I am. It frankly lends itself well, I think to, to the STR world, which you can talk about. But, yeah. um, when you double down on a, a one, a one market, your target list of customers is finite and it's identifiable, right? So when we were selling, we, we sold, like I said, both to agents and then we sold to brokerages. Well, the agents, I mean, there are 1.5 million realtors, right? So there are tons of them. So that's a little bit harder to maybe get that finite list. But there's, there's thousands of brokerages where there, there are not millions, there are not tens of thousands that you'd want to sell to at least that are sizable enough. And we really, we literally built that list. We identified every single C-level executive that we would sell to, uh, that, or that we could sell to at those several hundred brokerages that we would target. And it just felt very manageable, right? Then it's like, well, how do you reach those people? How can we get referred to them? If we can, we identify agents that sign up to trial or pay individually with us that are part of those brokerages. And when we do, can we go to that C-level executive and say, hey, we've got 40 of your agents already using Contactually, paying it for them themselves. Why not roll this out for all 2,000 of your agents? So it just felt like, you know, not only was the marketing resonating more clearly with, you know, our target customers and we were really focused on them, but just internally, we were also more aligned and focused. It was like, you know, everything about our sales engine from the, the sales collateral to you know, the target list that the sales reps had were just really dialed in. And, and it wasn't like even the language the sales reps would use, like we really understood the pain points of the brokerages. It wasn't talking about the features as often because we mm-hmm. actually fully understood their pain around, you know, agent recruiting and retention and, you know, increasing the referral business on those agents, et cetera. So I could go on, yeah. but it's just, it's just a lot as a, as a lot that really, I'm a huge believer in this concept. And I, Whenever I'm talking to like, uh, you know, a new company or a new founder who's, who's like dragging their feet, it just, um, a little part of me dies inside because I just, <laughs> uh, we, I wish we, I wish we would have, we would have died sooner. It, it was such a big improvement. 100%. And before we go on to the short-term rental side, I am curious because me and my, I have a group of friends here in Denver that we kind of like to get together. We call our, our quarterly meetings, right? Our quarterly meetup. And mm. it's not like we're doing any business together at, yet. I'm sure it's going to happen, but, um, more of a quarterly meeting. This is talk and go over personal and you know professional goals. But one of the things that keeps coming up is um, the book Traction and then Rocket Fuel yeah. going into like the whole EOS uh, system. Did that ever yeah. was that ever something that got introduced to you when you first started, or was that like a later realization where you're like, ah, oh, dang, that's what like that's what we were doing the whole time? Yeah. So I think it was maybe the nature of when we started. We started in 2011. So or maybe it's 20. 10, I forget, but at, 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 at any rate, Traction, I think was, you know, came about five years later. So that wasn't really a, EOS was not a thing when we were getting started. I think what was a thing at the time was um, like OKRs from Google and whatnot. And so we oriented around 
of that concept and sort of frankly invented our own cadence for for meetings and, and goal setting and whatnot. Um, with Blue Maple, we we do use EOS and we have you know identified sort of our ten year. Uh, I forget what the exact phrases are, like the ten year vision, and we've got our you know key differentiators in terms of our business and you know what's our guarantee. And so we 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 adopted a lot of that of EOS internally, and I just think. I mean, frankly, also as a, you know, a guy in his late thirties now compared to my mid twenties, when I started my last company, my own maturity, I think has, has, you know, improved quite a bit in terms of how I think about building a a company and goaling the team and and managing the performance. It's just changed a lot. So anyway, yeah, at at this point, I think I've between EOS and just my own, you know, toolkit and framework of how I approach uh, goaling and aligning the team, it's just improved a lot. Yeah. And you said earlier, you said you're, you're definitely an operator. So you, would you consider yourself not the visionary, but the integrator? Yeah, it's, uh, I have to wear both as CEO of the company. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I'm ultimately the person painting with the direction that we're going and inspiring the team. Um, I've been fortunate with Blue Maple and that I've got a really strong business partner and our COO in Brandt. Uh, and Brandt is an, an amazing, like also in the weeds operator. So probably better than me. And so I think maybe a challenge that we have as a business is we're both really operationally strong and my natural strength is not to be very like marketing or rah-rah or like visionary. And so it's sort of knowing that about myself and about the two of us, I think we, we ask, we, we like over index on trying to correct for the natural like disposition where we wouldn't, we wouldn't maybe invest in those things. Right. Like we wouldn't for the longest time, for example, we were really focused on you know, revenue production of the properties and like yields and like a lot of the operating and financial metrics and our properties look great and they're, they, we market them well, but it was like an afterthought, right? We, we even, even to this day, we don't yet have a head of marketing in our business. We're, we're looking to hire that person now, but it's just never been, it, it's, it's, I think it's the nature of how, uh, yeah, Brant and I, how, how we're so built and how we're focused. hundred percent. Well, the perfect segue, because now understanding a little bit of your background and kind of how yeah. all that formed and you, you did make a good a good point you know starting in your mid-20s to now being in your late 30s you've learned a lot you were able to get a lot of like i think people underestimate sometimes or at least people that aren't entrepreneurs and founders underestimate that time that when like, mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like it's not like when like my dad he says he works you know he works at boeing uh, he's been there for 28 years, right? That like everyone's like, wow. oh wow, like that's that's incredible, right? And, like that's a huge amount of time. But when you're a founder doing like a hundred jobs at once, uh, going through this whole journey, not to discredit my dad's, you know, 28 years. I'm definitely not saying that, but I think when you tell you tell careful, someone, oh, careful, yeah, oh my dad doesn't listen to the podcast, so thank God I won't get I won't get destroyed for that. But um, more of like if you look at that 10 year time span, right? Like let's say you went from 25 to 35. You know, that's a big learning, you know, time for you as a person, as a leader to now starting another sure. venture where like, I think you have so much opportunity for more success than you did the first round now going into the second one. So with Blue Maple, mm. I would love to to kind of, I guess, ask a question and frame around things that you've done before the learning lessons prior to, you know, like you're talking about EOS and you and Brant and how this is all kind of working out. You know, what would you say the similarities have been from now this new venture getting into short-term rentals, not just real estate and software, but you're actually able to bring in best practices of operations and of course, technology and, and of course, raising a fund even that's uh, another whole topic we probably jump into as well. Sure. 
Yeah, I think, um, man, we could take this in a couple of different directions, but what, what jumps out right away. So the difference is between, you know, starting the software business at 25 and then I'm, I'm 37 now. So running my, my company today, maybe there's a, there's a couple of themes. The one is I think we did, well, we did two things. One, we did a lot of things because it was like, this is the startup thing to do, right? <laughs> like, you know, we raised capital, not because we asked ourselves, oh, do we need to raise capital now? It was like, oh, we'll do, we're going to do a startup thing. And we, and we never phrased it that way, but that's what we were doing. We were like playing startup uh, or playing company building, right? And, and I think, mm-hmm. and so, and that came from just ignorance and probably a lot of ego, right? We, we wanted to like prove to the world and to ourselves that we could raise venture capital and we could build a big high growth company and sort of do the startup thing. Uh, and I fast forward to today, I think a lot of that, I mean, and frankly, look, it was a, it was a successful company and we had a great exit. And as a result, a lot of that chip on my shoulder has been filled. Perhaps if that wasn't the case, I'd feel differently, but mm-hmm. a lot of that doing things to feed the ego, is just, it's gone away. Um, or, or it's like, that's not nearly the driver of what it was previously. And as an example of that, I think a lot of my friends, even, you know, company building today, a metric of success that they'll often talk about is the size of their team, right? Or their mm-hmm. headcount. Whereas today I'm trying purposely trying to keep Blue Maple as lean as possible with as small of a team as possible. And with Brant and I, when we talk about division of responsibilities, I want as few of direct reports as possible. I'd rather have yeah. frankly, no one reporting to me. Uh, I, I know my strengths. I know what I like, and I'm totally comfortable to call it a spade a spade. So that's, that's one set of like ego and, and just being candid and doing things that are best for the business, not to just like because it's cool or because it's the thing to do, quote unquote. The other is you know, at this point, I've just tried a bunch of different frameworks and talked to, seen a bunch of other frameworks or systems or ways of, of building a company. You know, elements of that worked and elements of which don't work. Uh, and I don't know that there's any one right way per se. You know, I do cringe a little bit when I hear people um, really cling to a particular framework as the thing to follow. I don't know there is one thing. But I think I know what works for me at this point, and I've got a pretty relatively light, but a system that I think works. That I, mean, I, I call it sort of my operating playbook or operating system for how I like to run my own companies and teams. And, um, and as a result, you know, I'm not reinventing the wheel, and I feel like the time I am spending is really highly levered and is not, you know, we're not doing a lot of busy work. Uh, I'll take the time as an example on Monday morning to do an hour, you know, half an hour to an hour of planning for the week such that my week is very productive versus being very scattered. And my calendar is all planned out for the week, including a bunch of like IC time, like individual time. If I'm going to do something that will take an hour, it needs to find an hour on my calendar sometime this week. So things like Mm -hmm. that, that I just found work for me and that I didn't necessarily have in my back pocket, you know, 15 years ago. So for sure. Anyway, those are just some examples. Well, it's a, it's a good point of like self-awareness. I think a lot of, people I, I i'll speak for me personally when i i struggled with you know raising up out of high school and getting into adult years of being self-aware i did a lot of things like you were saying earlier you know you know we raised fund, funding because that's what startups did right well i partied exactly. and did all this dumb stuff in high school because that's what teenagers did and i didn't really think about self-awareness mm. and and all this other stuff so when self-awareness hit later on it definitely was like wow why, why was I doing all that? Like what a complete waste. And obviously like, it's not a waste waste, but there's a lot of learning lessons from it. My thing is, you know, the self-awareness key, I think is super crucial, especially for like founders in tech founders in real estate founders in short-term rentals to be, 
uh, Frank and like hospitality. Yeah. So the fact that you had that earlier on is it's pretty like a, a big leg up, even though, like you said, there's maybe some ego and a chip on your shoulder from the, the startup, like 25 portion. But I, I think, you know, evolutionary, if that's even the right word for it, the evolution of your, your founder and entrepreneurship, you know, having that self-awareness piece is key. Like there isn't one framework, like you said, but totally. at least one portion of it should be self-awareness and understand, like you said, call a spade a spade. If, if you're not gifted in that one area, don't pretend like you are yep. and, and find a, find a way to run the team. So I guess I want to hear going into, we, we were talking a lot about entrepreneurial stuff and for all the listeners, this may not be the normal conversation we have. It's usually like hospitality and operations and all that getting sure. into now with blue maple running a lean team, raising a fund, you know, you had your own property. What were your big learnings being kind of like an owner operator in the beginning to then now going with what you guys have at Blue Maple with over 60 properties and, and rapidly growing. Yeah. Um, well, maybe let me just give the quick arc on sort of where we were yeah. and where we are today. And then maybe I'll sure. touch on some uh, learnings along the way. So just to kind of set the table or timeline. So this was right before I bought my little cabin in like mid 2019, right? So it was pre-COVID and it was a little cabin in the woods, a couple hours outside of DC. Uh, we were renting it, or I was renting it on the side, self-managing it. Come right before COVID, I tried to convince my wife to like, hey, we should buy like a lot of these cabins in West Virginia because we're just printing money on the first one. She's an attorney. She's very conservative by nature. Uh, and she was just, yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to zone in like, you know, five, 10 cabins in the woods. Uh, and so I, I, again, asked what I said, you know, 15 minutes ago, or asked, this, asked the question of, you know, what would it take to form some sort of entity or fund such that we could you know, buy these properties and diversify the risk across, you know, multiple owners, multiple of my friends who maybe would want to do the same thing. And that, what I'm describing is basically a real estate private equity fund, right? Like put all the assets in one fund and investors are co-owners in all of those assets and we're diversifying the risk. And, you know, I'll put it together uh, in charge of sort of small management fee. So that's, that was the impetus behind uh, Blue Maple and Fund One was, you know, I want to scratch my own itch. Uh, diversify across a bunch of deals and sort of replicate the success we had with the first. So that was, um, you know, raised that small fund uh, right before COVID. We bought, you know, 11 properties from that fund. Uh, Will, you and I were chatting uh, right, right before this saying, you know, what is it like managing our own properties uh, versus like managing other people's properties? We, we did, there was the siren song of, well, we've got all the infrastructure in place. Why don't we manage some other people? So we did, yeah. a few people came to us, said, hey, do you want to manage our properties? We said, yes. We had a couple others. And then I ended up raising a second fund, a much larger fund to buy another hundred properties, which we're currently deploying from. So to fast that we raised that last winter, we've been deploying it over the last year. We've purchased 40 properties in the last, or 45 properties in the last year. We're buying about three to five a month. So that's the rough numbers and timeline that we've been up to. All right, Slick Talkers, now for another dynamic sponsored duo of the podcast. I would love to introduce you to Vintory and Safely. About Vintory, we've had Brooke Fotts on the podcast, who is a founder, multiple times, and him and his team know numbers. They know data and they know marketing. They know how to help property managers just like you scale and grow their business by adding more inventory, aka more homes, into your rental program that drive the bottom line. For all of you listeners that want to learn how to scale and grow your inventory, you can get a free digital copy of Brooke's book, 
called From Zero to 500 Properties in Five Years. And for an added bonus, if you would do a demo of the Vintory platform, you'll get a $50 gift card to Amazon. Now that's a sick deal. And now to touch on our friends at Safely.com. Safely.com helps property managers just like you and I protecting the homes that they manage from structural damage to content damage and of course bodily injury. This means plates, linens, cups, couches, tables, curtains, walls, and of course your guests themselves are protected. And this helps you by scaling your company in order to ensure that you are retaining owners and inventory in your program. If anything is broken or if anyone is hurt, you are able to make a claim through Safely and within three business days you can get instantly paid out to replace any items and settle any claims that happen on site without having to deduct from your owner's payouts. That's why I call these guys the dynamic sponsor duo. And thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. Check out their offers in the show notes and back to the episode. I would say the lessons coming out of that, I mean, the very worst part point of, of any of that was, you know, three, four or five properties in where I didn't really have much infrastructure in place. It was still me and like a couple of folks in the Philippines on our remote team trying to manage all of the guests' communications and all the property operations and whatnot. And I ultimately, uh, when, this, when the septic backed up at 11 o'clock at night, like I was getting those calls and it was just miserable. <laughs> and I tried to be on vacation. It was just my phone would blow up. So that was like the low point. Um, but I think the lessons learned from that is just like, how can we, you know, build out infrastructure in every sense and redundancy such that we're anticipating the growth six months from now and we're not scrambling, it was scrambling after the fact. Um, so that was maybe one general operational lesson learned, you know, another was again, my own being very comfortable and candid with my own strengths. Like I would not have raised the second fund and tried to grow from, you know, 15, 20 properties to 130 properties. Uh, I wouldn't have had to do that without an awesome business partner and someone who was going to own those operations where I could own the acquisition. So we split those responsibilities. Brandy's awesome at everything operations and a really good people manager too. And so he was, you know, excited by and energized by working with our field team and our remote team mm -hmm. and digging through all the, you know, little issues that crop up where I, I, I found, I just found a drain. Um, so that was you know, putting the right people in the right roles that they're fulfilled by that are not taxing for them, but it's actually empowering for them. You know, that was mm -hmm. obviously a clear unlock and we've continued to do that with other roles. And maybe just lastly, thinking about, we were initially a one trick pony, right? Had the cabin in West Virginia. Then we were like a 12 trick pony and had the others from fun one. And as we've scaled, you know, we've, we've, we've been pleasantly surprised that a lot of the success from those first, you know, handful of properties have continued to like that, that, that has scaled. So we can do 20, 30, 50, 60 more properties with similar mechanics. But I think our eyes have, we have become open to like, well, what we did initially was a lot of things to drive growth really quickly to buy a lot of properties. And we were less focused on efficiency, right? How do we drive lower operating costs or how do we, you know, do things in a way that's, that will grow the yield on the investment in a way that's not just driving top line revenue growth. And so we're spending a lot more energy now asking ourselves, well, what are either other ancillary revenue streams that we can bring into a property or what are ways that we can cut down the operating expenses within a property as a means of generating re yield versus just, you know, how do we price better? How do we market better, et cetera? That was, we didn't really have to do that in the midst of COVID because there was so much demand. Now that demand has pulled back some, or at least competition has increased, we're thinking about those other ways. 
So anyway, that's a long-winded answer, but those are some of the areas and lessons learned. No, that's a great, great way for us to kind of hit multiple topics at once. First, we we have a pre-chat with every guest on the show and every listener knows this, that I don't hop on a recording without actually talking to you first for at least 30 minutes. And you and I got to do a chat sure. before 2023 kicked in. And I, I remember asking you the question of, you know, why are you going for these property types, these cabins in the woods in West Virginia, Virginia, mm-hmm. just outside of D.C.? Uh, I think you told me there's a specific property, I guess, framework, like you were saying, from like two to three bedrooms, X, Y and Z. Yeah, yeah. So why why did you guys go that route? And or maybe the better question, how did you figure out that was the right route to go uh, when it comes to these property types outside of just like grabbing as many vacation homes as you could in any market, in any type, in any style? Sure. Well, I, again, I, I think I'd be lying if I would say it was like strategic from the start, right? I happened yeah. to buy a like three bedroom cabin in you know West Virginia, a couple hours from DC. And so, and, and that did very well. So I said, why don't we just repeat that? I mean, just to, to speak candidly, that was the initial thought. I would say, um, I mean, just to put some numbers behind it, right? Our typical purchase price is relatively inexpensive cabin. These are like 200 to 250K cabins, so inexpensive. Mm-hmm. But they're in markets where there's enough demand such that they can consistently produce, you know, 50, 60 plus K of top line revenue in, in COVID boom years, that was like, that averaged hundred K. Right? So that was amazing in 2020, 2021. Uh, and now again, we can conservatively do 50, 60, 70 with several of them annually. So from my, just talking about those numbers, right? A lot of our peers that we talked to, you know, they, they would view success buying like a 500 K to a million dollar property that would be doing 50, 60 K of gross, right? We, we, we can do that with a much less expensive cabin. The, so that's, that's the type of asset that we like to buy. But it begs the question of well, why doesn't everybody do that? And the reason everybody doesn't do that is because the only place you can buy very inexpensive properties like that are places that are very rural where there is not a lot of existing infrastructure in place to operate those properties. Like there aren't cleaning yeah. companies in, in our markets. There are. Uh, there's maybe one property manager and either they've been at it for 30 years and they're not really following best practice. And as a result, they're, you know, they're not dynamically pricing they're not professional, professional photos. So, you know, you basically either wouldn't want to use the, the infrastructure that's there, or it just doesn't exist. And so when we go into a market, we have to hire all the field talent ourselves and sort of do a lot of legwork in order to even make that a tenable investment. But once we've done that in a market, it allows us to, to operate and drive the high yield that I'm talking about. So that's what I think is very unique about us is we're comfortable and good at rolling up our sleeves and getting very operationally deep in the weeds, uh, both in field ops, as well as like the back office ops. And I think just a lot of other people struggle to do that and, or don't want to do it is the, is the, is the short of it. I agree. And it's it's unique because like you said, it not a lot of people are doing it because of the amount of work that goes into it. It's not easier to do that. It's actually a lot more harder, especially having to hire in-house, most likely. For yeah. you, you're talking about the the yield, right? So this new yield, right? You're you're not looking at just top line revenue, but looking at how to become operationally more efficient, uh, ancillary mm-hmm. revenue, other things like that. You know, not coming from a traditional hospitality background give me some insight on the learning from it obviously you can see Mm -hmm. that it does drive a better return but when it comes to maybe a a comparison of 
operations to then even just thinking outside the box when it comes to what you guys already are doing and how you've gotten to the, the scale that you have in such a compared to what everybody else is in a shorter period of time. Right. So for sure. this, this new, yeah. Yields. Uh, what, what are you learning from, from that? Uh, a couple of things. One, maybe just to, to riff on the point of like differentiation or maybe how do we do yeah. things in a very efficient way? Cause sort of implying yield. When I say yield, by the way, just maybe not use a term that maybe is not clear to everybody. Um, yeah. I just really mean the gross revenue minus any of the operating expenses and debt service divided by our total all-in cost in the property. So like, you know, the down payment and furnishing and repair costs, right? Mm -hmm. That is sort of the annual net yield, like how much net profit we're generating uh, as a percent basis over like our all-in dollars. And we want to be generating 15 to 20% net yield on everything that we do, if not greater. So, and we're averaging 19% this year. So that's sort of just rough numbers of where we're at. I guess there's two ways to think about the efficiency. The one is as a property manager, right? So we both own the assets and we manage them, right? Mm -hmm. So I've always got a lens on asking myself, how do I manage these properties as efficiently as, as I can while still preserving really high quality, right? High quality guest experience, high quality experience with our field staff, et cetera. And we do the vast majority, anything that can be done behind a computer is done by our remote team in the Philippines. So I've been hiring and working with Filipino teams since the earliest days of contactually, right? So about 15 years now. And um, I've had a lot of success doing that. I'm very comfortable doing it. And so, yeah, all of our guest communication is done in the Philippines. All of our interaction with cleaners and handymen and whatnot in the Philippines. And you know, a lot of our accounting is in the Philippines. So I think a lot of PMs don't, well, I know a lot of PMs don't do that. I've spoken with a lot of those peers. And some people I think are just often very uncomfortable with the idea of outsourcing a lot of this to, you know, another country where English is the second language, but we've been really pleased and it really gives us a lot of flexibility to over-invest. Like we'll, we will personalize the hell of a, out of our communication with guests and we'll put, it takes a lot more man hours to do that, but because it's less expensive to do it, it's like worth, the juice is worth the squeeze as an example. So that's on the PM business where we are focused on like, how do we drive more and more efficiency with pushing as much as we can remotely. On the property operations, you know, our biggest expenses are in things, I mean, there's obvious things like utilities and, um, you know, the debt service, like paying the mortgage or on these properties. But the thing that we, we ignored, for example, for a long time, but now we're like, oh, damn, this is a big expense. Uh, I'll take linens, for example. Uh, we buy a lot of linens for our properties, right? We typically have like four or five uh, change of sets. Um, and then, of course, if anything gets stained or dirty, we're going to replace them if we can't clean them. And we weren't really closely monitoring it. And then when we like dug in and toward the end of last year, we, we, we have a loss rate that's seemingly like three, four times the industry norm, right? Like mean, like we're not necessarily losing them, but we're replacing them because we can't get the stains out of their ripping or whatever else. And it, it's a very, yeah. it doesn't seem like it should be a big cost, but you know, a towel is, you know, 10 ish dollars and each sheet's maybe 15. It really adds up when you've got 60 properties. And so we saw that and we're like, damn, if we can, reduce just the linen costs uh, by 20% the, on, the, on the loss, it'll add like an extra point of yield to our uh, return for investors. And so it's little things like that. We're basically going back and asking ourselves, where are the biggest uh, OPEX operating expense line items? How readily do we think we can move the needle on reducing those, right? Utilities, maybe we can move the needle and put some more energy efficient things in, but Maybe not a ton, but we're pretty confident on this consumable type stuff. We can really cut the needle a lot. 
dead service, you know, the rates are what they are. You can't really reduce it. So we're not going to try. But again, think where we are, we're going to invest in. And our objective this year is to invest in a handful of these areas to, as a means of, you know, driving three to 5% greater yield, you know, even if revenue stays exactly the same. So that was not our attitude at all, even six months ago. And now it's really shifted as we have matured as a, as a business. Well, yeah, it really gets away from you once you get past a certain property inventory count, right? I think the you know, totally. 10 units, 15, 20, you're like, all right, not too bad. Obviously, like you said, linens cost what they cost. The The rates are what they are. But once you guys get to what you what you're at, you know, that's it, it can get away from you really fast, really, really fast on the linens and the totally. towels and the stains. And you don't think people are like you don't think you're going to go through that much. I don't go through that many linens personally at my own house. Right. I'm not, you know, staining linens and ripping stuff and all that. Yeah. But now it's uh, when it's a proper that's used for all sorts of activities and get togethers and vacations. Yeah, it goes way faster than, than expected, especially. Yeah, with the amount of turn that you guys have. So yeah, it's uh it's always funny to see how that can be the one, the one thing. It's like, damn, linens are always the craziest. Well, it, it's because it, it's it is it is one of the big things. But to kind of further elaborate on the point, right? It's there's like a bunch of those one things, right? There, there are like all these little things where it's kind of going back to the focus on real estate example from you know the start of our conversation. Was it the was it the biggest expense? Or sorry, were realtors the biggest category of customers? No, but it was a big one. And so we decided to focus. Yeah. Are linens the biggest expense? No, but it is a big one. And so to ignore it, it mm. definitely does, doesn't make sense. Um, and so it's, again, we're just, I think, maturing our perspective on what does success look like for our business and for our investors, right? Our investors, North Star is very clear, right? They are expecting cash yield of at least 15%. That's what we're going to deliver for them. And rather than just trying to focus exclusively on revenue, there's a lot of other levers we can pull. And now we're just, we're more intelligent about how we're pulling those levers. Yeah. And linen is one of those ones that you have a lot more control over. You don't have the control totally. on how often they're getting ruined or whatever. But at the end of the day, you do have the control like, okay, buy more linen. That's what we need to do. And you get that done. And you obviously do a better inventory count and maybe come up with some different laundry systems and x y and z things versus like labor totally. you know you can't really control that as much as you can control linen labor you know if it takes them longer it takes them longer like you can't just like all right snap your fingers and get the cabin ready so there's a yeah. lot of different things yeah understanding that you can control that as that at least that aspect more than you can others right away that's uh mm -hmm. again just a better option i love it um going into what is next i know we're getting to the end of the episode and we have a fun little thing yeah. that we do with every guest but you know what's 2023 you're you're learning you're maturing you guys are evolving as a company you're deploying all this capital now uh trying to you said i think 100 cabins this year or with this fund in particular yeah so this is our second fund um we're actively deploying out of it so this year is you know to fully deploy the rest of the fund that's the objective which should put us at roughly 130 cabins so another 50 or so we need to purchase this year that's the prime objective in doing so, you know, we will have created this portfolio that's in a, you know, it's all, they're all drive to destinations primarily, at least outside of DC. And so, um, we think there's a real large, a really big opportunity to do a, a much better job of remarketing to our guests and sort of cross pollinating the properties where if you stayed at property A and had a great experience, you know, can we get you to come back and stay 
maybe again at property A, but also B, C, D, or Z, or right? a whole bunch of them. We, we, our property is a little special or the way we operate them are a little different in that we on average have 13 stays per property per month, right? So we have very relatively short stays and we have very high occupancy. And so our past guest list grows dramatically as the portfolio grows. Um, and so to make a long story short, we're hiring ahead of marketing. One of the areas in which we think and an asset that they will have, and we'd love for them to help us better utilize is how do we better engage and get those past guests to rebook and, uh, and refer to us. So that's a big focus for this year. And then look at, as we continue to grow the operations, grow the portfolio, deploy from the second fund, we're going to, you know, our model's working, right? We're driving really nice yield for our investors. Our guests love what we do. You know, we have a four, four, eight out of five average in Airbnb across 4,000 reviews, right? So we'd like to think what we're doing works. And so we want to keep doing it. Yeah. We're going to raise a third fund, probably even a larger one buy another two to 300 properties and, you know, keep on the one hand, it's kind of like rinsing and repeating what's already working. On the other hand, it's like, you know, leveling up to that next, um, you know, the next step up of scale and probably, you know, expanding into some other markets, potentially expanding the asset classes in which we're, you know, we've, we've done this like two to 250 K cabin. We're starting to buy a little bit more expensive cabins. We're starting to experiment with some development, right? Doing some micro development, tiny head cabins, um, domes, that kind of stuff. So anyway, to make a long story short, one of the things I find really exciting about this industry is our path to growth is very clear, right? We've been so successful with our investors that our ability to raise capital, it's, very, it's, it's relatively straightforward, right? People want to invest in our funds. And then the creativity of, well, how, what types of properties do we buy? How do we market those? It's just very, it's, it's fun, right? There's like a lot of the world's your oyster, right? You can design these different experiences that guests love. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this year. I'm excited for the years beyond. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully our results continue, right? We think we're making the right calls and uh, yeah, our plan is just to keep doubling down. I love it. And I love the, the focus on remarketing book direct, getting them to come back. That's such a, again, a, a level up, right? Like you're, you're forming not just a, a company that operates and brings good return to investors, but now you're bringing a brand to the, to the market and, and a different light, uh, for the guests. So totally. I love that. Well, uh, Tony, I told you that we are doing this new thing every year or not every year, sorry, doing a new thing this year with all of our guests. And we're going to, we're asked the guests before you to ask a question for the guests next without telling anybody who's who. Uh, mm. so going into your question before I ask you a question for the next one is Catherine Ratcliffe. She is the co-founder of lost together stays with her husband and her three kids. And she asked the question of who tells your story about what you've done and what would they say about you? About me personally or about, about our company? What do you, what do you think? About you, that? you, you, you as a entrepreneur, as a founder, who tells your story and what would they say in the end? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a cool question. Who tells my story? I mean, I think, I'll try to be succinct, but I'm going to, I think, be forced to give a somewhat well uh, uh, roundabout answer. I, one of the things that I love to do, and it, maybe it's just the nature of building that software business that's focused on, you know, staying in touch with your network, is I really, and, and just being someone who's naturally curious, I love meeting new people. I love asking a lot of questions and getting to know like the ins and outs of what, what they care about and what they do professionally and whatnot. And so I think... I've kind of naturally just built a very 
wide network of loose ties in a bunch of different industries. And so maybe the kind of impression that people have had or the impression I'm trying to give at least and people remember of me is that, you know, I, I genuinely love learning about what makes people tick and getting to know them and being helpful where I can in, in, those, in those conversations, not necessarily knowing you know, every day I typically have a call, one or two calls with somebody. Most of the time, those calls don't have like an explicit uh, goal or agenda, but I kind of view it as like, well, yeah, yeah, I like doing it. I'm curious. Mm-hmm. But B, it's like planting seeds in a bunch of different things. And a lot of times those seeds turn into things that it's hard to predict in advance, but I'm, I'm like excited to see where it goes. And anyway, it's a long way to way of saying, I, I sort of treat a lot of my professional relationships with life that way, where, you know, I'll give, 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 uh, and help where I can with a lot of these conversations, but I have found that it has paid back dividends many, many times over, over the years. And so anyway, I think people, I think people think of me as a smart guy, open guy down to earth, who's, you know, fun to have a beer with, uh, is sort mm-hmm. of the, the vibe I'm trying to give out. I know that is that you, you, you think that answers your question? <laughs> I think that answers it. And I think I just learned what that kind of um, method is, right? Where you're talking about give, 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 and then it pays dividends. I think it's called the mailbox method where it's uh, you're always giving out letters and you're actually returning more than you're putting out. It's I think that's what I heard something very similar, if not. So look it up. Anyone who's listening, I would love to know if I'm actually right. But um, no, I think I've, I've not heard that, but it sounds... I've heard um, my previous co-founder used to describe this like expanding your luck surface area, right? You don't know where luck's mm. going to strike. And so you just do do the things that will constantly like push out the boundaries where luck could strike, yeah. right? So do these random things. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think both are similar philosophy. Yeah, 100%. Well, now for you, not knowing who the next guest is going to be, but yeah. do you have a question for them? What would What would that question be? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll start with the question and I'll explain it. I think my question would be, what do you think a life well-lived looks like? And what are you doing this year differently from the last year to better align with that, with that ideal? And I asked that question, I think really, you know, when I sold my last business and now I'm working on this new one, like I said, I felt like I had that chip on my shoulder filled to some extent and you know, had a win, had some cash in the bank. All of that was nice. And I really had got to ask myself, like, what do I want to do next? What am I motivated by? And, and design my at least professional life in a way that was going to be most aligned with what I thought a life well-lived looks like. And I personally think a life well-lived looks like, you know, spending time with the people you care the most about, you know, be, being loved and loving in return and, you know, being, uh, feeling like you're, you're engaged and stimulated mentally and, and engaged in a community that you care about. So I'm trying to do more and more of that. I've got, we didn't touch on it, but I've got three young kids, six and under at home, and I'm trying to orient a lot of my time to spend more with them and, you know, not in just the nine to five. So anyway, that, that's my, my question. And uh, I'd love to hear what the next guest says. Awesome. I love it. And I, I think that's, you know, it's always one we kind of touch on a little bit in the podcast as much as possible, you know, going into work-life balance or work-life alignment, however people want to call it, and and going into that. So I think that's a great question for the next guest. But Tony, I honestly really enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoy getting to see different operators come into the space with different experiences and just learning different ways of how to do the same business. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. Not everyone's an owner operator or raising funds, but what you guys are doing uh, obviously is working 
and I think you guys are on the right path for a great success going into this next phase and chapter. So I just want to say thank you for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and insights and experiences with everyone listening. Yeah, of course, man. Uh, thanks for having me. And and again, as I alluded to, or I really explicitly said five minutes ago, I, I'm a, just a huge believer in in you know meeting interesting people and kind of seeing where those conversations go. So the extent to which any of your listeners you know want to connect pretty easy to find from the only that's the nice thing about having a weird last name is you can always find me <laughs> online uh if you want to reach out my email is it's tony at stablemaple.com would love to chat if anyone's interested awesome yeah i was just actually gonna ask that question so you answered it there for me and for all the slick talk listeners make sure you like and subscribe to everything that tony and his team are doing i'll link everything in the show notes and we'll see you all again next week Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our show partners for making Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast possible. We hope you enjoy the show and we would love to connect with you outside of the podcast. So you can follow us on all of our social media channels for daily hospitality content or find us on slicktalkthepodcast.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Will Slickers, and we will see you guys all again next week.